All right, everybody, and welcome to another episode of This Week in Hearing. Uh, very excited to be joined today by Devet Svanapool and Jan Willem Wassman, um, two of the, uh, I think, most um, cutting-edge, forward-thinking um, researchers and scientists in the field of audiology. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about ChatGPT and the you know, really the introduction of large language models, uh, broadly speaking, and how these large language models might ultimately impact our industry um, and all the different professionals working within it, as well as the patient base. Um, so we'll get into that and talk all about it. But first, let's start with some introductions. So uh, why don't we start with you, Jan Willem, um, a little bit about who you are and what you do. Hi, uh, I'm Jan Willem Walsman. I work at the Radboud Medical Center in Nijmegen as audiologist, both as clinician and, and researcher. I really like to yeah, being involved in how AI can be used in audiology. And so that's why we coined the term computational audiology. And we wrote this perspective paper uh, about three or four years ago. Ago, And I'm really surprised that what we made as predictions at the time, I think all those predictions are already passed and even <laughs> have surpassed our expectations. And things are going really fast. And it's good, I guess, to explore this and see what could be the, the benefits, but also the risks for our community. And uh, well, happy to enjoy, uh, to discuss this with you today. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. And Devet. Yes, Dave, it's good to be with you again and with you, Jan Willem, um, on the show. So yes, my background is I'm a professor of audiology at the University of Pretoria in South Africa. I also have an adjunct position at the University of Colorado. Um, my area of research interest has always been around, you know, technological innovation, connectivity, and how we can utilize that in hearing healthcare to make hearing care more accessible. And I think that's also where this link with the, the exciting technologies um, that we've seen kind of come online with ChatGPT over the past couple of months has kind of, you know, uh, uh, intersected. Uh, I also have a few other, um, you know, hats that I wear. So I'm also uh, the editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Audiology. And then I'm also a co-founder of a digital health tech company called the Eric's Group. Awesome. Well, thank you two so much for being here. Like I said, couldn't have been um, joined by two better thinkers, I think, uh, on this topic. So just to kind of set the stage a little bit, um, you know, when we're talking about these things, they feel kind of abstract and esoteric. Um, but I think that we need to be conscious of just how pervasive and widespread these things are becoming. So, you know, OpenAI, that's the parent company of this large language model, ChatGPT, which has only been out and available to the public for about two months, has already amassed a user base of about 100 million users. So that is the fastest application to ever reach 100 million users. So this thing's growing like wildfire. You have folks like Bill Gates out there saying that um, these large language models, you know, whether it's ChatGPT or another one, they're like orders of magnitude of, of um, you know, impact um, as like the internet and the PC. Um, so you have some some people out there really calling this thing out as being a seismic um, changing forcing function um, that's going to really change a lot of different things and a lot of different professions and, and just the way that we operate, just like the internet did, right? And I, and I think that we need to kind of start thinking about you know, in audiology, what, what will this all mean and how will this impact us? So 
Why don't we start, Devet? I'm going to kick it over to you. If you if you could maybe kind of frame the conversation beyond what I just did there very briefly about these large language models and um, this notion of like AI powered internet. Um, can can you just share your thoughts on what's going on right now and what these things really are? Yeah, sure, Dave. I mean, I think uh, just agree with you. It's uh, very exciting times. I mean, anyone who's played on ChatGPT a little bit would agree that, you know, the power uh, of these technologies is astounding. I mean, it's just remarkable. And apart from, you know, the personal kind of exposure and experience, we're seeing massive shifts in the entire, you know, industry, technological, but also in healthcare in general, in terms of how these technologies are changing the world around us as we speak. And as you mentioned, I mean, it's the fastest growing platform of users ever. And it's certainly, you know, one of those massive changes uh, in technology that uh, that creates a new era. I mean, suddenly, if you're used to chat GPT, you know, doing a, a, a regular Google search feels like a two-dimensional exercise, right? So suddenly, I mean, uh, six months ago, that wasn't the case. Now that's what it feels like. So so the, these technologies are super exciting. Um, so AI chatbots are a type of generative AI that can generate text. Um, they use these large language models um, that allow them to really provide answers to prompts or questions in a in a really human-like fashion. So uh, in essence, they're just computer programs um, that use natural language processing to communicate with humans, but they are trained on tremendously large data sets, um, which mean they draw from, you know, information that is in, in a way almost limitless in terms of um, availability on the net and in other large databases. So, so certainly very powerful technologies. I think what's also exciting, I mean, we talk about ChatGPT, but there's actually a wide range of other technologies uh, that have already existed before ChatGPT that are now expanding exponentially because of what ChatGPT has done to bring it to the forefront. And um, they've been brilliant in the way they've marketed it to make it freely available and accessible to everyone. So the interest has just grown tremendously quickly. But I think, you know, what's important to recognize, Dave, is the fact that these technologies are not just silo technologies that you go and access. We have seen them proliferate in terms of integrations into other existing technologies. I think the most um, typical or the most widely known example is the integration of ChatGPT into Bing's uh, as a search engine. You know, it was almost a relic of the past, but now Bing is growing exponentially, you know, um, it's becoming one of the most widely used um, search engines because it's integrating this AI um, technology into its platform. So that's just one example, but everything around us is starting to integrate this. I mean, every week we see new technologies like Salesforce is integrating it. Slack is integrating it into their platform. So we're going to be seeing these technologies pop up on, on, on everything we do, our calendars, um, our to-do lists, etc. So, So it is an important trend to think through um, generally, but also as audiologists and as hearing healthcare clinicians and researchers, it's going to change the way in which we interface with patients and provide our services. Yeah, that's really well said. Thank you for that uh, nice overview there. Um, you know, I think that the uh, the being example is a really good one because 
Um, you know, OpenAI did partner with Microsoft to really, I think, bring that technology to Microsoft and, and its search engine Bing. And what we're seeing, like you said, is that you had these sort of status quo technologies like Google that, at you know, once upon a time was revolutionary and groundbreaking in and of itself. And now that's sort of being superseded by something that has the ability to, I think, generate um, the types of searches. And, and I think this is one area of application and use case that it's extremely well suited for, that um, these these new search results have a level of context that we've never really seen before. And that context is derived from all kinds of different uh, inputs like Reddit and, um, you know, these different things that are like sourcing a lot of customer feedback. And so when you go and you search something that's like, what is the best hearing aid or something like that? um, In the past, you would get, you know, with Google, you would get a bunch of paid advertisements. And then, you know, there would be some method of authority to weigh those uh, remaining search results. Now, what um, you know, GPT would be doing is going and it's gathering a lot of different inputs and it's going to probably spit out a totally different answer than what Google would. And so I, I just think that it's that's a very, very specific example, but we're going to see a lot more of that. And I think that the key kind of culprit of what makes all of this so different is that contextual understanding of going beyond just the black and white definitive answer binary results that you would get with Google. And now you're seeing um, a layer of this context and and that opens up a giant can of worms in and of itself, because it's like, how does it get to these new answers that seem so authoritative, but are they flawed inherently? So I'll kick it to you, Jan, and and get your thoughts on, on kind of this whole thing. Yeah, that's a really good question that I would say that these uh, large language models are actually excellent guessing machines. So if you ask this machine, okay, complete the sentence once upon, then it will probably guess right as a time. And, but that's something that's simple, everybody can do. But then if you ask it not to complete only the sentence, but just to complete a whole story, I just did it and asked it to make a story that's also nice for children to listen to, it will create a story and then explain at the end why it's confident because it used some story about magic it's confident that children will like it and yeah if you use it and test it for all these kind of creative processes i think it's really nice that it out of nothing can either hallucinate or create content but also because probably the main driver will be these search machines people will get use of using being AI-like applications, not only ask yeah, things where to buy something, but also probably about hearing aids, about their healthcare status. And that was the reason that I started to just creating some prompts. These prompts are the questions you can ask to a chatbot and see what ha- would happen if you ask uh, these machines, okay, I have a hearing loss, what should I do? And I was actually surprised about the the answers that are quite accurate, although there's no reason to assume that they would be accurate because um, the system that I used at the time, ChatGPT, an older version, has no clue about the world around it. It just uses this big set of training data where it can use a lot of information from, and it came up with quite good answers that I could at least review and say, okay, this 
makes sense. Um, so I see a lot of potential there, but at the same time, it's important to realize, yeah, these are all um, answers that are likely, but they are not factual. And there, I think we have to really think about, okay, how to discern facts from hallucinations and what are then the ways to proceed? And those will be different, I guess, for researchers, as for clinicians, as for patients. But what we see with the researchers that one example is the evidence hunt application where there's a model like uh, GPT-4 that's using only data from PubMed or it's constrained to this data. So, and it will also show what PubMed articles it used for its answer. And what I just tried is gave the question, prompted a question to this system. And then one possible application would be if you have these answers to say, okay, this is based on evidence. Let's ask uh, a system like uh, GPT-4 to rewrite this into layman terms so that it's clear to, uh, for instance, a patient you will see. And then you can check if it makes sense. And I see these kinds of integrations to use it in, in healthcare where still there's a, an expert in the loop. But um, for me, it's easier because I know ah, this is based on quite new information, maybe not from the last year, but at least up to 2021. And it can help me in explain it better to another person. Or also another way I test this is by just telling a story to ChatGPT and see how it responds to it. If that's a good response, well, maybe if I then tell it to a person, that person will also understand it the right way. So it's a way to get feedback, for instance. And then if other things, if we look into hearing healthcare specifically, I see this developments merging. I like there has been Siri in 2010 that was voice to text, so voice commands. And around 2016 that we see this automatic speech recognition. So speech to text, which is of course a really helpful application for many people with hearing difficulties. And now a future application would be that I see many people with hearing loss guessing what persons are saying. If then a model helps guessing and maybe is built into your device, it guesses what a speaker is going to say and gives this as a prior to the noise reduction system, which has to go really fast. I mean, these kinds of interactions could, yeah, could be maybe reality within five years. That's for certain uh, how, if I realize how fast it has been going in the last mm -hmm. few months. There's a there's two things that you said there that I, I uh, that really resonate. Um, and the first one I want to circle back to is this idea of like a large language model being restricted to one vertical. So PubMed, um, I think we're mm -hmm. going to see a lot of this. So I think that like this idea that you have these broad based LLMs um, like ChatGPT mm -hmm. that is scouring so much of the internet um, there, because think of how much written text exists out on the internet today. I mean, it's basically accessing all of the open gardens, if you will, but there are closed gardens. And I think there is mm -hmm. going to be a lot of advantages of having um, singularly trained LLMs within specific verticals. Yep. Um, healthcare, I think is a really good uh, uh, example of this. So let's come back to that. But the other one that you mentioned is this idea that, you know, Siri has been around since 2010, 2016, you know, we kind of see like the Amazon Alexa, Google assistant. Um, and 
Devet, you mentioned something at the beginning before we even started recording, which is like a lot of this has kind of been happening behind the scenes and percolating for years. And and now we've seen it kind of like all be put together. And I couldn't agree more with that. I've been following the like uh, the voice um, user interface space for a little while. And I know that what we've really seen like kind of in this Alexa era is what I think of it is major improvements on natural language processing, um, text to speech, speech to text. So basically computers beginning to actually uh, interpret language and then be able to spit it back out, whether it's speaking it or it's just in a chat interface. Um, so I think that kind of like what we're seeing is it's not as if this is some sudden emergence of a brand new technology. This is actually a maturation of like five technologies that have all sort of matured to the point. And now they fused into this one thing. And that's where I think now we're, we're seeing kind of that byproduct of like, okay, when you put together all of this and you have this ability to capture so much of the internet and go, it almost reminds me of, I'm not sure if you've ever seen the movie Short Circuit 2, where um, Johnny yeah. Five is the robot and he's he can read and, and it's like he's constantly just um, gathering as much information and he can read, you know, lightning speed. So he's in the he's in the library and he's reading the entire encyclopedia. I mean, that's essentially what these things are, are able to do is they can read the whole internet and spit back out to you a consolidation of that. So there's a superpower ability here. But obviously there's a big can of worms that that opens up, which is like this idea of, you know, how do you make sure that the information that it's gathering is accurate? Um, what kind of oversight is there? Um, you know, those kinds of things I think are are going to become paramount as we move forward. And we know that there's already parts of the world that want to either slow this down or completely remove it. Um, Italy, I saw just this morning, Germany is now considering banning um, something like this. Um, so I just kind of want to get your your thoughts on this, either one of you on this idea of like, you can't really put the genie back in the bottle. So it seems like we have to kind of work around what exists. Um, but I mean, if there are governments that are actively trying to um, put the, put the clamps on this, I'm, I'm just curious if you feel like that's uh, feasible in any way and, and how you see this kind of shaping and, and shaking out. Yeah, Dave, maybe I could just respond on a couple of the things you mentioned, all, all, all super relevant comments. Um, and, and there's so much to talk about here. I mean, I like the Siri, um, you know, story that Jan Willem also introduced. I think, you know, Siri gives us a little bit of context, you know, when it came out, it was absolutely revolutionary. Um, but in a way, Siri now looks like a young infant, you know, and chat GPT is probably, you know, a, a five, six year old. It's still, <laughs> yeah. still maturing, right? I mean, we, we haven't seen where this technology is going to go yet. And um, we've had a bit of a, a, a foretaste. Um, but, but I think there's a lot of exciting things to come. Obviously, with these new powerful technologies, there's all kinds of concerns that are raised, right? And I think, I think those are important things to also mention and discuss. And those are also the things that are being raised in different forums. I mean, you've mentioned Italy kind of raising concerns, Germany also raising some concerns about where the data is coming from and the privacy, etc. So I think those things need to be worked through and need to be discussed. And there needs to be good bodies to actually, you know, help us to have better transparency and insight into how these models work, where they get their data from. 
and how we can utilize them you know in a way that actually you know helps us not to have a biased view from what these uh, technologies are giving us because the one thing these technologies are really good at is sounding convincing confident and they sound like humans i mean i think that's one of the powerful things about these ai chatbots is they really engage in a in a human interaction uh, that that feels natural to us so so, so so that that also kind of fools us sometimes to believe them too easily right because they do get it wrong um someone uh, uh, compared chat gpt to a really enthusiastic young inexperienced research assistant and I, th- I, th- I, th- I think super smart research assistant, right? So um, very eager to help, very eager, eager to collate information, give it to you. But 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 it does get it wrong, and 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 we've seen seen that happen as well. So you need to have a way to kind of validate and check that. Maybe some other just general comments around what you mentioned in terms of oversight and managing this revolution. Um, in in the research field. You know, ChatGPT is amazing at supporting writing of research documents, uh, research articles. So when it went live on the 30th of November, researchers started using ChatGPT to write research papers, right? So you give it some information and it's super at generating text and writing an article even for you. Um, And suddenly, you know, the the big journals had to kind of respond. So you can see ChatGPT is a co-author on many research papers already published at the moment. And uh, then we saw some of the influential journals like Nature coming out to say, you know, they're not accepting ChatGPT as a legitimate author. And, and, And they needed to do some work to say, what constitutes a legitimate author, right? And they came back with the with the rebuttal to say, you know, an author needs to be able to take responsibility for what they're writing, which ChatGPT and any AI chatbot obviously can't. But I think that's a good line, and, and and they've made some good recommendations about next steps for us to not ban this the, the technology, not try to get rid of it, like you said, not try to get the genie back in the bottle, but how do we find ways? to utilize this technology to help us be more effective, more efficient, more responsible, and to get information out quicker to people so that we can actually move faster in this knowledge generation, you know, era that we're living in. So so, so we need some guidelines. We need, you know, the right processes in place. But certainly, it's. It, uh, I believe it's not not the right approach to try and ban it, but actually find a way to use it um, uh, responsibly. And I think there it's also important for us to to know how to acknowledge ChatGPT. So so it doesn't plagiarize. It gives good information. But but we need to be able to report to say, you know, ChatGPT was a tool that we utilized to generate this text or to write this article or to do this data analysis or, or, or whatever. So, so we need to find good responsible ways of acknowledging its contribution so that we're transparent in that way. So I've, I've added a lot of additional comments. So let oh, me just kind great. of put it up to uh, Jan Willem or you, Dave, to kind of uh, comment. Jan Willem, I'll kick it to you. Thoughts? Yeah, well, I think there's also good uh, critique given by, for instance, researchers who say, okay, but this is all not validated information. Um, you cannot use it in a clinic. And I must say that I agree that that that's, that's true, but that's in an ideal society, ideal situation. Often I see that, for instance, People have questions to me or they already have found some answers. And there's also a lot of errors there. 
and you have only a limited time to give an explanation. So you focus on a kind of on a number of items to further address. But what I found interesting that, for instance, uh, this ChatGPT also gave advice about a healthy diet or about um, being thoughtful about sound levels. And that are things that either you as clinician take for granted or that's a conversation on itself. Eh? If you have only 10 minutes, for instance, and you think, oh yeah, the diet is important or the hygiene, th those kind of things. So it's interesting that these systems popped it up and that could also be uh, maybe the key for a next conversation with your specialist. So there I see also opportunities that maybe uh, these AI chatbots can help you in digest all this information or prepare for your appointments. And as clinicians, we could also collaborate with, within our association, for instance, and see, okay, what are good prompts, for instance, uh, to ask and maybe publish some kind of frequently used prompts that we could advise to patients that we could say, well, that is a good start. And of course, with some of the uh, warnings of possible potential misuse or uh, in case of doubt, contact your uh, clinician or some health provider. In that way, I think it's helpful if we start to, well, if we experiment this instead of banning these uh, technologies also because, yeah, it's impossible, I guess, to ban because it will be built in into many applications in the near future. Yeah, it, it certainly feels like one of those things that it it's going to be really hard to um, completely reverse and uh, put back in the bottle. But I mean, there will probably be efforts to at least mitigate the speed. And that's, I think, what probably is both most astonishing and also most concerning is just the rate um, at which this seems to be progressing. I mean, the first iteration that was released, like Devet said, like in November, was... Um, was really kind of mind blowing. And then this next version is even better. And so it's just kind of crazy to, to watch. Um, but there were a couple of things that you said there, Jan Willem, that I thought was really interesting. So first of all, it's like this, uh, and, and maybe we should get into, um, you know, the, the article that you two wrote, um, around basically, so you mentioned like these prompts. So that's kind of the the terminology that that's used when describing how to even communicate with them is you're prompting the large mm -hmm. language model. And so you guys did some prompts um, sort of from the perspective of the patient uh, in a hearing healthcare setting, as well as the clinician. And I thought there were a couple of really interesting things that came out of that um, that we can talk to. But to your point, um, because I think it's very specific, but I think this will be broadly applicable all over the place is this idea of like sort of um, unexpected answers. So you have, you know, if they're, if it's going to spit out seven bullet points of, uh, you know, recommendations of what to do if you detect a hearing loss, you know, and, and like the first five of the seven are probably going to be pretty generic, but then there are things that it's obviously sourcing from some publications that it's weighing as being authoritative. So it's factoring in diet and exercise and all that. So even if that's not something that's like verbatim in the guidelines issued by, um, you know, some standards committee, some standards committee, um, it's still adding that in. And I think that we're going to see more of that where I think these models have an opportunity to go beyond, I guess, like the best practices, the status quo and introduce things that might be a little bit more off the beaten path. 
which could actually be really significant um, in the grand scheme of things when you're thinking through all kinds of different medical anomalies, more or less, and the role of the doctor is largely to determine what's going on with you. Um, you know, I think that what, what really makes me excited about this is the idea of some sort of, uh, you know, off the beaten path. Um, study that was done that might be completely unbeknownst to the clinician that this thing is surfacing insights from. Um, and it seems like maybe that could be a, a real upside to this is that it's it's because of the breadth at which it's going and scouring all of the different clinical data and, and studies and stuff like that. It might be actually surfacing some information that would not be surfaced um, if you're just strictly going off of kind of the status quo today. So I'll just throw that out there and let you respond to it in whatever way you want. But I think it would be good here to just kind of start talking through how this does apply to audiology, the patient, the clinician, the researcher, mm -hmm. really any any one of those different participants yeah. in here. Okay, I'd like to reply to that. I think it's also important this transparency because uh, if it's using these different sources you need to be able to somehow assess its validity, of course. Yes. And what I think in these discussions overlooked that it's called open AI, for instance, but it's not an open organization at all. And these models are not open source or publicly available, nor its exact training data is also not available. But if in theory, such model would be openly available to researchers in hearing healthcare, then it would be really interesting if you can train this model specifically on parameters important for audiology and also maybe some of the important facts for our patients, for instance, to take into account and that you can add also where the system is basing itself on. So maybe I don't know how well our databases are, but you can imagine that if ENT doctors and audiologists around the globe would fill a database with their best practices and say, okay, we just constrain this model to these best practices and it will help clinicians who are not up to have the best practice, for instance, to learn from it and had to disseminate this uh, clinical approaches. While on the other hand, people who don't have access to a clinic can use uh, prompts and then uh get information from this validated model that will be really helpful so i'd say that these commercial models have shown that it's really versatile and could be used but hopefully by more community-driven approaches that are open and also maybe freely available because open ai is also now um giving priority to people who pay for instance eh, give them more bandwidth etc that would be helpful and could be in the long term in terms of uh, how to organize your healthcare model be a good cost effective um, investment uh, if many clinics throughout the country and also patients can benefit from better information better access and um, better clinical workflows you know, one, one thing that comes to mind here and I'll send, you know, either one of you can respond is going back to the point that I was making earlier about these verticals. So these specific 
Um, you know, basically think of OpenAI as being able to scour anything. But if you start to put parameters on that, then you can create, um, you know, more or less a, a definitive amount of information that it's sourcing from. Um, so you think of like, you know, maybe the way this evolves is you have these large, you know, medical institutions like the Cleveland Clinic or something like that, where they're basically establishing that, okay, so for anything related to cardiology, um, we want those standards, you know, or all of those best practices to be guided by the, you know, like the United States Heart, Asso Heart Association or something like that. So audiology would be like the American Academy of Audiology, you know, whatever, whatever you're going to, um, whatever kind of prompt pertains to hearing healthcare audiology, you need to use this set of parameters and this information to kind of guide the answers. So that's kind of, I think one way that these could be shaped is that, um, you know, kind of like I said, these bodies, these large bodies are actually defining what the prompt, or I'm sorry, what the language model is able to access to begin with, knowing that there's, mm -hmm. that's a level of oversight that I could kind of see being implemented here is defining yeah. what's, what's being sourced. Yeah. And that people know what's in the data. And for instance, I try to use prompts to limit, constrain the model to only using American standards or British standards. And I didn't see any effect on it. So mm -hmm. even if you try to build it into the prompts, apparently that's not the level to constrain it. And it should be mm -hmm. deeper in the model. And there, I guess we really need, need as a field to yeah, embrace, well, not embrace this technology, but see how we can get a better alternative, learn from this. I mean, it's for everybody clear that GPT-4 or uh, this MedPalm from Google, that all these systems, that will not be the final shape. Uh, we're now maybe using these five-year or six-year-old AI advice systems. And it gets good to consider them as minor so that if it's something really important, uh, then you don't rely on the, the opinion of a, of a five-year-old. So good to keep that uh, also in mind and see how to integrate these different systems that keep the, the errors in check while also allowing for yeah, um, upscaling applications and making benefits put, uh, yeah, accessible in countries where maybe it's not affordable yet or where uh, the information is even not findable. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, that's one of the important uh, applications for these AI chatbots is kind of assisted diagnosis um, for clinicians. Uh, we've had systems available for many years, you know, but they just haven't been as intuitive and they haven't relied on, on, on such large um, models. So so I think we're seeing this kind of taken to a, a whole new level. Um, I agree with the transparency, but, uh, but the exciting thing is there's all kinds of ways in which these AI chatbots are going to and are already improving clinicians' engagements with patients. And, and I think we've spoken about the diagnostic, uh, you know, silo, but there's so many other, other ways. I mean, they're perfect at doing case histories, right? I mean, they can do a, 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 an amazing case history, ask the right, right open-ended questions, and then kind of, you know, narrow them down so that you can have a thorough case history already done before you even see a patient. Um, I, I think we're also seeing them, you know, uh, contributing to the efficiency of the engagements with patients. There was just a, a recent article that came out about um, 
uh, Microsoft actually embedding this into a tool that will allow clinicians to get patient notes transcribed automatically and then organized and structured for you, you know, after you've done your consultation. So it saves you a lot of time. So it increases efficiency, effectiveness of our engagements as well. And then, of course, you know, the whole idea of as we collect information about this patient uh, during the the case history beforehand, but also during our consultation and testing, it can collate the information, but actually also start interpreting that information for you so that you can have a cross-check and a cross-validation when you speak to the patient. And it can make recommendations on treatment options already can be validated by the clinician and as you mentioned, Dave, I think it could, it has the advantage that it thinks about everything in its database. So you can actually, you know, think about things and suggestions that we may sometimes forget about. But we need to recognize, um, as Jan Willem also kind of reminded us, that, that it needs the oversight. We don't yet know about the transparency, how, how the data is, you know, being put together and, 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 and what potential biases some of these models have. But super exciting to see, you know, the whole clinical engagement being affected by these technologies. And, and, and I, I think in the next couple of years, we're going to see them integrated into that entire journey. Or another example could be, I already asked GPT-4 to interpret an audiogram of mixed hearing loss. We can expect that these models are going to also output images or maybe use uh, images as input. So I can imagine that you give a handover an, an audiogram, which is more clinical information for the expert. And then as a patient, you can just make a photo of this audiogram and ask a chatbot to explain it to you and maybe have this better interpretation or a repetition of what the expert told you hey, in this brief conversation. So also there it can help in explaining uh, your patient journey where I think the risk, for, I mean, of course, there can be errors made, but as long as you have checks and, checks and balances and ways to restore it, for instance, if you have it in taking the patient history, yeah, then of course there is a follow-up moment with the clinician and you can set things straight. Yeah, these yeah. are great. Sorry, Dave. Yeah, I mean, any clinician would uh, complain to you about the amount of admin they have to do, right? And report writing. Yeah. And ChatGPT or these kinds of models are absolutely perfect to generate these reports based on the data that, that, that you receive. So certainly, you know, potential there for efficiency and and and, and also cost effectiveness gains in, in practices, but also in large healthcare systems. Um, and that's just on the... I mean, we've just been discussing the clinician side mm -hmm. of this. There's a whole, what about the actual consumer or the patient? You know, how can they engage with it and, and, and actually, you know, benefit from this even before they see a clinician or, or as a support system after they've seen a clinician? Yeah, there's a couple of things coming to mind here. Um, and I know we are kind of coming up on time here, but, um, you know, I, I just think that this idea of having the... Um, Having your own large language model, I think, on your own data would be, I think, 
really impactful, you know, so you're talking about like the patient's perspective, you know, what happens if you get to the point where, um, a lot of those different electronic medical records in all their different shapes and forms from the audiogram that you're uploading onto your iPhone, um, you know, and, in uh, Apple health and all of these other inputs that you can be sharing with a large language model of the future. That's literally specific to your data. Um, you know, how, how in, powerful would that be when it can start to take all of these different inputs and figure out what's correlating and impacting one another, your diet, your sleep, you know, you look at like kind of this trend of the quantified self, you know, with your Apple watch and this idea that there's more and more sensors and there's more data that you're capturing and you're, you're feeding a model right now, but that model isn't, you don't have the AI engine yet. That's going to really start to make sense of it. So I think that's coming as well. That's going to be really, really powerful and uh, will change a lot of this stuff. But, you know, it's again, we're at kind of day one here. And um, I, I think like even to your point, Devet, about this notion of the uh, for the clinician of like being able to create efficiencies, a lot of that, again, has sort of been pre, um, you know, like there was a precursor, which is like, you know, even the ability to transcribe your your past meeting through your voice into a notes app or something like that, you know all of these things have sort of enabled what's happening now um, because this all exists is like you have this large database of your, you know, even for one patient and, and all of their records. So it's a matter of like, how do you start to combine that and consolidate it and, and draw insights from it? It's a task that is almost impossible right now because of how fragmented the data is. And then also like who has the bandwidth to do that. So that's a perfect application. I think of these large language models that we're at the beginning of, I mean, we're only seeing these things scour publicly available information across the internet. Think of when it starts to be able to do this for um, personal records. And I probably just opened up a giant, another conversation there, uh, <laughs> which I'm not sure we have time for, but um, closing thoughts in general. Well, well, maybe one short question sure. answer would be, I think that flowing more data at these models is not the solution now because it's almost already the full or entire internet yeah. that's used to train. So getting more out of the same information or constraining it, I assume that will be, and wrapping other functions around it, other databases, that have validated information, et cetera. That's, I, I think, the, the way forward. But we will see. I assume that nobody knows what's in store for the, the rest of this year, let alone in <laughs> 2025. Yeah, so and, and maybe, you know, just uh, one or two thoughts from my side as we close. Um, you know, I think we, we've covered a lot of ground just in kind of uh, the healthcare, maybe touching a little bit on hearing healthcare space. But of course, this... This technology covers every field of, you know, occupation and health um, uh, in, in general. And, and it is also changing the landscape of the tech giants that we're so used to. You know, I mean, uh, you mentioned it's day one of, um, of this technology, Dave. Uh, I, I think it was Google CEO who kind of, you know, downplayed ChatGPT's prominence by saying, you know, it's minute one of, of, of an entire new journey. Um, and and I, I think that's true. But what we're also seeing is we're seeing these shifts and, um, you know, pushbacks between the different companies as well. Everyone fighting for this space. 
I think we'll have the advantage as consumers that you know we're going to get really fast developments, good products. But but the but the downside is that you know we're going to have to monitor because I think some of these things have been released without enough information being provided in terms of you know uh, what data they're using, what's the privacy, you know, um, regulatory uh, constraints that that they're functioning in, etc. But in any case, all kinds of things to discuss and exciting. Um, a new era that we're in. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. On that note, we will end today's conversation. I'm sure this will probably be the first of many conversations like this as this all does start to unfold and become uh, just more pervasive, I think, in our lives. So thank you so much, Devet and Jan Willem, for coming on today. And thanks for everybody who tuned in here to the end. We'll chat with you next time. Cheers. <laughs>